You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. One of the many blessings and joys uh, of being in ministry is getting to officiate weddings. I, I, I love that whole process from the premarital counseling uh, to the rehearsal dinner to the actual wedding to the reception. Um, weddings uh, are meant to be and generally are times of rejoicing, of joy for the, the, the bride and the bridegroom and for their families. Uh, I, I particularly love that moment uh, and uh, every wedding service where you turn the couple after they've taken their vows and you present them to the people. And it's just always such a, such a, a high point for me to say, I present to you Mr. and Mrs., whoever that may be. And everyone just usually explodes in, a, in, a, in applause. It's just, a, I, I just love that. I love officiating weddings. Officiating weddings is very different than coordinating a wedding. My wife and I coordinated my daughter's wedding. And by my wife and I, I mean my wife. There were so many details. There were so many decisions to make. So many conversations to have. So many things to check on. Do we have enough refreshments for the, for the reception? Uh, is the cake big enough? Or, or my daughter, she didn't have a cake. She had donuts. She loved donuts, so they had donuts. So did, did we order enough donuts for everybody? Which we did. We had like 200 left over. So. But, but there's just so many details that are, that are, that are happening in a wedding and a wedding reception. Weddings can be big stressors for people. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 2, Jesus attends a wedding. And while he was at this wedding, the, there was a problem that developed. They ran out of wine. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2, the Gospel of John chapter 2. We will read the first 12 verses of chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When they ran out, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Master of the feast. That's not a title we hear. How do you get that job? 
Take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, this morning we come to you after just being stirred by the songs we have sung of worship and praise and acknowledgement of you, the report of your work in and through Pastor Philip and the team that went, and, and hearing the darkness, but yet the light that is shining so bright in Nepal. And now we turn our heart to hear your word. Lord, we, we know you don't speak to entertain us or amuse us. You speak that we might know life. So we pray you would give us hearts to receive, help us to understand and help us to, to follow Jesus with all of our heart as a result. We pray in your great name, Savior Jesus. Amen. So just a quick recap of what we read. Jesus, along with his mother and his disciples, they were all invited to this wedding. We don't know who the wedding was for. We're not given the name of this couple. But what happened during the course of this, the wedding was they ran, or the reception, what we might consider the reception, they ran out of wine. In that culture, weddings went on for days. And you, and, and it was the responsibility, well, sometimes it even went longer than days. It could go for a week or even longer than a week. And during that time, it was, from what we can understand from the culture and from history, it was the responsibility of the groom's family to provide food and drink for everyone during the wedding feast. To run out of food or to run out of drink, or in this case, the wine, to, to run out would have been seen and as disrespectful. It would have been a, an insult to the guests. That's how they would have received that. I know this is a little bit alien to how we may think about it, but this was how it operated in Jesus' day. Mary finds out, Mary the mother of Jesus, she finds out that the wedding festivities, uh, that in these wedding festivities, the wine had run out. She turns and appeals to Jesus to do something about that. Jesus' first reply was to inform his mother that the, that the wedding running out of wine was not his concern. And the way it's really phrased, it doesn't come across sometimes in our English translation. And it's really not even your concern. He let her know in that moment that his actions were driven by a timetable that was tied to his ministry. It was a timetable that was tied to why he came to this earth. My hour has not yet come. She, 
And he wanted to be clear to her and his, his disciples who would have been standing there with him that, that she understood that he was driven by that purpose. Yet Jesus eventually does provide for the wedding by turning water into wine. As we consider this account, which is the account of Jesus' first miracle, his first recorded miracle, what is it that we are to learn? Why are we looking at this? Why is this included in the gospel? So we did just three quick things that, that we're going to look at in this. Uh, number one is this. This account is recorded for us to help us believe in Jesus. That's the whole purpose of the book. We keep coming back to this again and again. When Pastor Philip launched this series, it was, it was come and see. It's this invitation. So again and again, we're going to be looking back at Jesus, who he is and what he did and what he teaches. It is an invitation to come again and again and again to keep looking at Jesus. The wedding is, is just essentially the backdrop for what it is that Jesus is about and what Jesus is doing. That Jesus attended a wedding tells us that he valued weddings. But that's not, I think, the real main point of why this is for us. Blessing a marriage by his presence, and that's what it would have been to attend a, a wedding is to essentially bless, you're, you're giving your blessing, so to say, on that, on that marriage. Jesus present there would, present there would have been a, a blessing, uh, but that's not, I think, the real reason this account is given to us. The record of Jesus' first miracle is so people will believe in him. Verse 11, at the end of this section, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested, he demonstrated, he showed his glory in that miracle. And look at what was the result. His disciples believed in him. Well, what is a sign? A sign can be used in a, in a few different ways. There's just really main two things here. A sign, as used here by, by John... It is that which distinguishes a person from other people. This is a sign. This is a mark, so to say, that distinguishes this person as being different than other people. And a sign is also that which points to something else. If you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says rest stops ahead, is the sign the rest stop? No. It's, it's pointing to the rest stop. And that's essentially what this miracle is doing. It's distinguishing Jesus and it's pointing to something about Jesus that he truly is the Messiah. He truly is the one promised who had come. This miracle demonstrates that he is the anointed one. It is a testimony that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And there will be more to come as we make our way through the Gospel of John. In this miracle, he commands over nature. Enough so that he can turn water into wine instantly. This miracle was a manifestation of his glory. That's exactly what John tells us. 
It was a display of His splendor. It was a display of His magnificence. It was a demonstration of His power over physical elements. It was a testimony to His ability. And it was in that a majestic display. It wasn't as big or, or, or sensational, if that's probably not the best word, as some of His other miracles. But it was still significant. Enough so that Scripture tells us the disciples that were following Him, they saw what happened there and they believed in Him. I mean, they, they of course, knew Jesus was a significant man. They knew the testimony of John the Baptist, the one who came to prepare the way for the Messiah, the one who came to identify the Messiah. They knew John the Baptist said, this is the man, Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Now, as these disciples at this time, there's probably only four or five of them at this point. They are seeing in Jesus something they had never seen before. It was one thing to hear John preach. It was one thing to, 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 to hear and, and see the baptism that was taking place, a baptism of repentance. Jesus performed something they had never seen before. They knew that water had been put into those jars. And they now knew that that water was now wine. And it wasn't just wine, it was excellent wine. The Feast of the Master says. And it kind of threw his world. He said, this isn't how we do things here. We offer the poor wine first and then, I mean, we do the, it, it's just opposite. You're bringing this excellent wine at the end. You see, this, to some degree, I wonder if it helped alleviate some of their concerns about who Jesus was. This is just the beginning of his public ministry, remember. The first days and weeks of his ministry is, what's, is when this is happening. They would be amazed during the course of his ministry. They, they would see him do incredible things as he healed people. They would see Jesus as he cast out demons. They would, they would be with Jesus as He would silence the wind, as He would calm the storm. They would even see Jesus walk on water. They would hear Him as He taught, and He taught as one having authority, not like the religious leaders of His day. They would see Him as He would love the unlovable, as He would touch the untouchables. But this was the first miracle. And what they saw of Jesus made them believe in Him all the more. Okay, this really is the Messiah. This is the one. And this miracle is a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. Just like all of His miracles would testify to that effect. Even John the Baptist having probably a moment of weakness. He was in prison. He sent one of his disciples to Jesus. In Matthew 11, we, we, we read this. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, leopards 
lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Again, this brings us back to the purpose of the Gospel of John that people might see Jesus and believe. As we read through these historical accounts of Jesus' life, let your heart be encouraged to believe. As we read about these historical accounts, ask the Lord just for eyes to see Jesus clearly. Past all the religiosity and the clamor that so often gets confused about Jesus, just see Him as He walks through His life, displaying the power and glory of His Father in all that He does and in all that He teaches. And this is just a take. This is like this is like the salt that you put on the main course. They're going to do even all those miracles are just like the salt on the greatest main course, which is Jesus dying in our place on the cross. But it testifies to him. It says this is guy's different. He's not like us. You know, one of the main works and ministries of the Spirit is to reveal Christ in all his glory. May he do that for each of us. As we work through the Word, as we see Jesus on display here, a humble prayer would be, Lord, help me to see Jesus for who He really is. Help, help me to see past all the, all the expectations and all the other stuff that I, that, I, that I put upon Jesus and how I think about Him. Lord, let me just see Him for who He is. Let Your Word just speak clearly through all that mess and that haze that often fills our minds. Help me to just see Jesus clearly. Lord, keep my heart from pride because it is pride that keeps us from the Lord. It is our arrogance that keeps us from the Lord that, that shuts us off to Him. Reveal Christ and enlarge our hearts just to believe and trust in Him. Not only do we learn this account is, is in Scripture so that we might believe in Jesus, this account, I think, secondly, is also record it so we might know the Old Testament promises fulfilled. That the Old Testament promises fulfilled. There's a couple things here. So much of these first chapters, as we've talked about and have established in these first two chapters in John, are absolutely pointing us back to Genesis chapter 1. So we read in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And he goes on to describe how the Lord creates light. We're, we're meant to follow, the, to, to, to track these things together. I think there is something in, in, in the fact of, of referring us back to Gen Genesis that John keeps referring to specific days. 
John has given to us in chapters 1 and continues us in chapters 2. He doesn't continue this after chapter 2 though. Where he begins to give us a careful sequence of the days. In John chapter 1 verse 29, John says the next day. And basically what we would understand for that what had happened in verses 24 through, through 28 in those verses right before them, John's interaction with the religious leaders, that would be day one. Then Jesus says the next day in verse 29, that would have been the, 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 next, the, the second day. Verse 35, again we say, this is the next day, which would be the third day. Verse 39 tells us that the third day has ended and the next day, the fourth day has started. In verse 43, another day is referenced here, day 5. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, on the third day. Now, that's, that's a lot of math, and I know this is going to be confusing. I know it doesn't sound like that adds up to 7, but how the Hebrew mind and how the Hebrew people counted and considered days, Jesus turning water into wine would have been on the seventh day, as they considered counting days. Could it be just that John is again referencing us back to the creation account where God worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh day? Could it be in this, in that miracle, that Jesus is saying something new is beginning, a new work of creation? He is making new wine. In just a few verses, he's going to talk about the new temple. In John chapter 3, he's going to talk about the new birth. In John chapter 4, he will talk about a new way of worshiping. This could very well be another way Jesus is saying, something new is coming in me. And with that in mind, consider Jesus' comment to his mother. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He calls his mother woman. I don't know about you, but at any point in my life, if I ever referred to my mother as woman, that would not have been received well. Mary didn't seem bothered by it. In calling his mother woman, Jesus is making another connection back to the creation account and to a very specific promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It was interesting, and just in studying this, there are a number of scholars who, who, who make the case that this verse, Genesis 3.15, it's like the Rosetta Stone to understand all Scripture. It's the key. This is the verse that makes sense of all Scripture. This is the verse that they would say ties all Scripture together. Now whether or not we might think this verse is the key to all Scripture, we do know that this verse is crucial in our understanding of redemption history. We understand that it has a vital part in it. The whole Bible is about the story of God fulfilling what was promised concerning the serpent and the woman and the woman's seed or offspring. From the woman will come the seed, will come the offspring that will destroy Satan and the works of Satan. Could Jesus in this moment, could he be saying, Mother, you are that woman and I am that seed. 
I am the fulfillment of the promise and I will crush Satan and the works of darkness. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Amen? Colossians 2 verse 15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. We don't think of, Lamb of, God, of lambs ordinarily as conquerors. We think of them as gentle and lowly and they, they are. But we have a picture here. How did, how did Jesus conquer? How did this lamb conquer? He did it by taking away the sin of the world. When Jesus did that, He beat the enemy of your soul. He beat the enemy of my soul. Satan. Satan was crushed when Jesus was brought back to life. His power over death had been snapped. It had been ended. Jesus disarmed him, rendering him ultimately defeated. Yes, Scripture says he still roars like a lion at times. That's mostly show. He still deceives because he is a liar and the father of all lies. We know from Scripture that he accuses us. But we also know that our Savior defends us. And our Savior claims us and wraps us in His righteousness and fills us with His Spirit. And as Ephesians 6 tells us, we are well equipped so we can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And we can put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And it doesn't matter what victories or what, what minor things may come into our life. We know ultimately where we're going and what has been secured for us. Where is the evil one roaring in your life? Are you listening to the roar? Or are you listening to the lamb? Where is the evil one accusing you? If you feel accused in your life, it's almost always the evil one accusing you. Calling you a hypocrite. When the Lord works to convict us, it's always redemptive. He points us to hope. The enemy just accuses us to make us feel bad. To push us down the dark hole. Where is the evil one lying to you? Know this. Confess this. That Jesus is the seed of the woman that crushed Satan. And made the way clear for us to have life and to have it abundantly. Finally. This account is recorded so we can learn that Jesus is extravagant. He makes what we would essentially average out. He makes 150 gallons of wine. Now in our day, that would be the equivalent of 750 bottles. That's a lot of wine. Why so much? There are some people who look at this and think, 
that Jesus was preparing this for them so that after the fact they could sell it and maybe earn some money that could help them in their new life together. We don't know that. That might have happened. But Scripture doesn't say that for us. But you know what? This is so in keeping with our Lord. He does over-the-top kindness and generosity to His children. Here, just do you remember what happened when he, when he did the miracle of feeding all those people with the loaves and fishes? What happened at the end? How many baskets were left over? Twelve. When he told the disciples to, turn their, to throw their nets on the other side, they pulled in so much their nets were ripping. They had to call another boat to come over to help them. See, this is just helping us see Jesus again. Jesus isn't a penny-pinching miser. He's not begrudgingly with His grace or with His mercy. He is generous in all His ways to His people. He lavishes on us with good things. And He delights in doing that. And when we, we start thinking opposite, that's, that, that's usually the enemy that's introducing something. We're got, we've been skewed off into thinking other and that the Lord is good and generous and kind. Ephesians 3 verse 20 tells us this, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly, He's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Family, this is our Jesus. And daily we experience His generosity. How about the extravagance of our sins being forgiven? He didn't just dab some blood. He covered our sins in the blood. The extravagance of a new life given that is both eternal and abundant. His mercies freshly prepared. His mercies never come to an end. This is extravagant grace from our Lord. And it's because that's how our Heavenly Father is as well. His promises are always keyed up. And they're ready to fill our hearts with confidence when we look at them, when we let them fill our hearts. He always makes us to know the path of life. That's extravagance. In His presence is fullness of joy. Not just some joy, but fullness of joy. At His right hand, there are what? Pleasures for a little bit? Forevermore. We even can rejoice in our sufferings. Listen, I would not... Please don't hear me say this is, means that we're only going to have good things and positive things. No, we know we suffer for Christ. We know that's coming. But even in our suffering, we rejoice because we know God's love has been poured out. Poured out. That's what, that's what uh, Romans 5 tells us. His love has been poured out in our... That poured out is just His image of abundance. It's just overflowing. It's like, it's like a river that's being flooded. It just goes over the banks. It just, it just runs everywhere. That's the love of God. His truth that sets us free. Each day, we experience that to love and to worship and to serve Him. 
Each day, we know that we are welcome in His presence. We don't have to work ourselves up. We don't have to pray for 30 minutes. We don't have to read seven chapters of the Bible. We wake up in the morning knowing we're right with God and we have access to Him. That's the power of the blood of Christ. His work is extravagant in our church. In the people He is bringing, what a, what a humble blessing that is to us as we see that. Hearts that are hungry for Christ. Hearts that are hungry for the Word. Hearts that are hungry for Christian fellowship and to see the love of God on display. His extravagance is in our, just linking us together in gospel joy to do gospel ministry. The provision He makes for us each Sunday to come to this place. The way He's changing us. We hear it. We see it all the time. God is at work. He's changing your life. He's changing our lives. He's working among His people. Jesus' first miracle in those first days of His public ministry is just a foretaste of all that He will do and teach. And in that we see His Messiahship. We see He is the Anointed One. We see He is the Christ. He is the One. And turning water into wine, we see Christ as the One through whom all things, all things were made. And without Him was nothing made. It's just another connection to Genesis. As we read these accounts from the Gospel of John of all He taught and did, may our hearts just be increased, be enlarged to believe in Him more and more, growing in intensity and deepening in trust. Let's pray together.